I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 25. Psalm 25. This is a very relatable piece of Scripture before us this morning. If you've ever been in a place in life where you've known great sorrow, you will be familiar with much of the emotions expressed here. If you've ever encountered a time that left you in distress, you will identify with this passage. If you've ever been met with a scenario that has made you genuinely afraid, then you know the kind of feelings that David was subjected to here. No doubt that everyone here can identify with at least one of these emotions on some level. Maybe the experience that comes to mind for you is in the distant past, or maybe this morning you are waiting through that place now. Whatever the case, my prayer this morning is that as we consider the words of David here in this psalm, that the Word of God would minister to you in a way that helps you navigate this trial, or the ones yet to come in your life. That in mind, let's go to Psalm 25 and read it together. Of David, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sin. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. This is the word of the Lord. In the first stanza of this psalm, we find David worshiping the Lord and declaring to him that his trust is fixed on God alone. 
This is what's intended by saying that he is lifting up his soul to the Lord. And, and as he says, it's in you I trust. Immediately following this, David begins making petitions to the God in whom he trusts. He pleads, let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. This we see is the context in which David is lifting up his soul to the Lord. It's not certain precisely which trial of David's life has produced this piece of Scripture. Scholars speculate about a number of various trials in David's life where he may have penned these words, but the scenario is abundantly clear. He is experiencing an immense amount of grief. He he is alone in his affliction. And he is clearly afraid of the discernible realities at hand. There is a looming threat that his enemies would not only do physical harm to the king, but that they would denigrate his name, destroy everything he stood for as a king, and ultimately defame the name of the Lord God. Therefore, it is an understatement to say that there was much cause for concern in David's life at this time. Yet amidst all of this turmoil, the psalmist finds hope in two contrasting truths. He says, Indeed, none who wait for the Lord shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Now, this statement should leap off the page at you. The fact is that there's no apparent reason for David to think that he will emerge victorious from the circumstances surrounding his writing here. There is zero evidence that his enemies are growing weary, that there is no one coming to his aid, and with each passing moment, his kingdom is growing more and more vulnerable. So how could the king make such a statement as this? How could he anticipate that the whole of the situation is going to reverse such that he will find good favor and the evil will be devastated? It's because David understands that his hope does not lie in things observable to the eye of man. Rather, his hope is in the steadfast love of the Lord. And the rest of this psalm will show us what it looks like to hope in the steadfast love of the Lord amidst even the most dreadful moments in our lives. We will see that as he anchors his hope in the steadfast love of God, David is pleading for three things. Guidance, forgiveness, and deliverance. And in seeking these things, he employs very God-exalting language where we can observe his ever-present trust in the character of God. So first we see David's plea or his petition that he makes to the Lord for guidance. In verse 4 he writes, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. So it becomes very evident that in the middle of of this great calamity in his life, one of the things David finds most necessary to request of God is guidance. Quite understandably so, right? Anytime one experiences great distress, it can be paralyzing and disorienting. 
leaving the individual unable to move forward in any direction for fear that it would lead to ruin. Therefore, clarity and direction become invaluable in these moments. Now, before anyone looks here and says, well, if David is after guidance, if that's what he's asking for, I guess he just didn't know his Bible well enough. Before anyone says that and and stops there in their thinking, let's take a closer look at what's being communicated here. When the psalmist asked the Lord to make me to know your ways, he's not so much referring to the, um, the, the, the instruction of the Lord as much as he is referring to the Lord's methods of administering the affairs of the world. That's the sense of the word. David is concerned for being acquainted with the way that God has sovereignly ruled over every event in human history. He also asked the Lord to teach me your paths. And we know that this is different from the written word of God because in verse 10 he writes, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. So something more is involved here. Additionally, David says, lead me in your truth and teach me. And this term truth is less about doctrine and more in relation to the reality of God's existence, His being. Therefore, given the nature of what these terms mean, we see that the guidance David is crying out for and what guidance we should long for in the midst of our tragedies is the ability to see and trust God's sovereign hand at work in the midst of the world around us. This sort of guidance goes beyond memorizing Scripture. This enables you to see meaning in the hardships. It lets us come to grips with the purpose for our pain. Yet, I do want to make something clear here. While this guidance we should long for goes beyond memorizing Scripture, it is certainly not separate from knowing the Scriptures. In fact, I would say that what David is seeking here cannot come apart from knowing your Bible. Nevertheless, getting a clear vision in any situation concerning the reality of God's existence and His governing authority over the world can only come as one moves from simply knowing the Scriptures to applying them in the given scenario. But this necessitates knowing the Scriptures first. Allow me to use an illustration. We might compare the pursuit of these things to getting in a car and taking a journey to uh, see some majestic destination. You may have heard about this place or seen pictures of it, but you want to go and, and you want to behold the reality of this destination for yourself. And upon... Uh, arrival, just be able to take it all in. But if you're going to get anywhere in your car, you have to put gas in the tank, right? Nonetheless, putting gas in the tank does not ensure that you will get anywhere. You still have to make the journey. You, You won't get anywhere unless you apply the gas to the motor by getting in your car and making the journey, doing the traveling. You'll never behold the grandeur of that destination. Your senses won't ever become excited by the elements there unless you actually do.
do the driving, take the journey. So also, without the word, we could never hope to see God as he is or discern his activity in the world around us. But we must do more than take in the word. We must store it up in our minds, brothers and sisters, so that as it shapes your thinking and transforms you by the renewal of your mind, you may discern what is the will of God. Do the discerning. In applying the lens of Scripture to your specific scenario, suddenly you can see clearly. You stand totally convinced that God, in your affliction, has not gone anywhere. Or or abandon you. He is there and He is in total control. So one inference we can make from this text is to know the Word. Have a deep well to draw from so that, so that, in the white hot heat of the fiery trial, you can go to God. And ask Him to help you in that moment to use the lens of Scripture that you have stored up to bring into focus the reality of His existence and the way that His hand is moving within your circumstance. This is the first thing we glean from the Scriptures here. Moving from the first major petition of the psalmist to the second, you might be somewhat surprised to hear what he asks for. I know that in my initial study, I was downright startled by what he asked the Lord next. In verses 6 and 7, right in the middle of David petitioning the Lord for help in his calamity, he begins asking God to forgive him of his sins. And not just the sins he's currently struggling against, David asked the Lord to forget sins that he committed in the distant past. Sins that David has indeed already sought forgiveness for and made the necessary uh, sacrifices for his atonement. So what exactly is he doing here and, and what are we to deduce from it? Well, first, let's make clear what David is not doing with these words. He is not rehashing some particular sins that he has already sought forgiveness for. David is not experiencing the judgment or the wrath of God in his current tragedy in connection to some past transgression and therefore pleading for forgiveness again so that he may be alleviated of his distresses. That's not what we see here. In fact, we don't find that occurring anywhere in the Scriptures. Yet, this is a prevailing thought among many Christians. I find in conversation with brothers and sisters far too often that they think themselves to be enduring God's judgment. They would tell you that Christ paid the penalty for their sins on the cross, but that on some level and in some way God is punishing them for some egregious sin in their past. But friends, this way of thinking is contrary to the gospel message. It fails to see the totality and the finality of what Christ accomplished in His death on the cross. We must not forget 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 2, which says of Christ, He is the propitiation for our sins. 
He and He alone satisfies the anger and wrath of God because He and He alone is able to do so. You and I cannot do this in any measure. So so this morning, if that is not your view of the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross, then your view of His sacrifice is too low. And it's only in getting a more robust, a more biblical view of that sacrifice that will enable you to lay down the burden of thinking you are in some state of perpetual purgatory. God does not hold His children accountable for the sins He sent His Son to die for. So what then is the purpose for verses 6 and 7? Well, we must let the whole of Scripture inform our thinking on a more difficult statement like this. And in doing so, things become pretty clear pretty quickly. After all, it's David himself who says in Psalm 103 of the Lord, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Therefore here, when David appeals to the mercy of his God, we see that he's not actively seeking forgiveness per se. In reality, he's acknowledging the fundamental truth that we as sinners by nature don't deserve any deliverance from our trials and hardships. This serves as a reminder for us that apart from the sheer mercy of God, His his withholding that which we deserve, apart from that, all we would know is misery and affliction. You see, it would be totally just and right of God to keep us in unending agony. It's solely due to His rich and self-initiated mercy which He promised to His children. It's solely due to that that we have grounds for an appeal to Him. Therefore, what we have here is an example of the disposition of one who can confidently appeal to God in their hour of need. David shows us how to rightly approach God. And the way that we do that is with an attitude and posture of humility. Recognizing that the Lord owes us nothing. And entreating Him based on the merciful character that He's made known to us on His initiative. It's from this posture of humility that David, in verse 8, seems hopeful that the Lord will indeed turn His attention toward him. He writes... Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. And David has just identified himself as a sinner in need of the mercy of God. So apparently, David assumes that his request for guidance in verses 4 and 5 will be answered and that the Lord has not forgotten him in the darkness. And why is David inclined to think thus? Because he knows the truth of verse 10. That... All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. Now this term steadfast love is really kind of difficult to nail down because it's so rich in its meaning. But at the end of the day, what it really entails is God's committed kindness and goodness toward those who are His. It's a love that will not let you go. 
And that's working all things together for your good. Therefore, it's no wonder why this is where David anchors his hope in such a tumultuous time. There is no greater hope than to know that all the ways, all the activities of God toward His people are kindness and faithfulness. There is no sweeter hope. But who is this steadfast love directed toward? Verse 10 says that the steadfast love and faithfulness is conditional. It's only for certain individuals. David says it's for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. So what does it mean to keep the Lord's covenant and his testimonies? Simply put, there is an element here of obedience to the will of God that he's laid out for those in covenant relationship with himself. However, no one has ever truly kept God's covenant and his testimonies. Not even close. So, who is it then that can hope in the steadfast love of the Lord if no one has kept the requirements of it? David answers this question in verses 12 through 14 by asking, Who is the man who fears the Lord? He goes on to say, Him will the Lord instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Do you hear it? The rewards described here are for those who fear the Lord. Therefore, what David is laboring to show in poetical form is that those who keep his covenant and his testimonies are those who fear the Lord. And to quote one theologian I've heard on fearing the Lord, he says, to fear the Lord, Old Testament language, is to faith the Lord, New Testament language. So then, who is it that qualifies as one who is kept the covenant. Who can know, like David, that all the paths of the Lord, every working of God toward me is steadfast love and faithfulness. The person who is actively exercising faith in Christ as the one who has kept the covenant of God perfectly and is trusting in His righteousness on their behalf. So hold to this in your heartache, brothers and sisters, that Christ has secured adoption for you as a child of God and all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness to His children. Even this circumstance, somehow, someway, is for your good and is His kindness toward you. As David moves on, he clearly expects some manifestation of the steadfast love of the Lord to be shown to him. As we read in verse 15, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the net. Yet, David is not persuaded that this will be soon. And it does not produce in him a superficially chipper sort of attitude. We see this as David's prayer abruptly picks up with his plea for deliverance. Having established 
his position as one who can put his hope in the steadfast love of the Lord in the middle of his trials, David draws the Lord's attention to the severity of his anguish. He asked the Lord to turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. And he asked him to bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my troubles. Forgive all my sins. Now, brothers and sisters, we are a congregation that champions the sovereignty of God in all things. And for that, I am profoundly grateful to God. However, one challenge that we are presented with here in these verses is to never be guilty of the charge some bring against those who hold so highly the sovereignty of God. Namely, that our understanding of His omniscience and omnipotence would somehow quench our fervor in prayer. To just assume that the Lord is well acquainted with your trouble and will act when He deems necessary and therefore shrink back from bearing our hearts to the Lord is a misunderstanding of the implications of God's sovereignty. Rather, let us be a people that knowing God is able to do whatever He desires, let us plead with Him all the more with total assurance that He is able to deliver us from the affliction if He so chooses. Additionally, that that wrong implication of prayer as it relates to the sovereignty of God simply misses the blessing of intimacy afforded to those who are in covenant relationship with the Lord God. Which is what we see David experiencing here. The, the, The blessing of a sinner expressing his angst to his God. What more precious thing is there than that? This is remarkable. And it's what Paul tells Christians to do in Philippians chapter 4. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And this is one of the most glorious realities of the new covenant, brothers and sisters, that in light of the sacrificial work of Christ, the veil has been torn. So let us then do what the author of Hebrews has charged us to do and with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We get to bear our hearts to the Lord. And doing so is a sign of trust in the Lord rather than in the temporal things of this life. That's why David is able to say in verse 20 that it's in the Lord that he takes refuge. Now you'll notice that this psalm comes to its conclusion lacking any outburst of triumphant joy that we see often in some of David's sorrowful writings. And that's purposeful. You're intended to see that. In verse 21, David says, May integrity and uprightness preserve me. And for what reason? For I wait for you. As the psalm opened with David waiting on the Lord, so now it comes to the end with David waiting on the Lord still. His hope is is not yet realized. It must continue 
It must endure. Observing this, it's not hard to understand why the Spirit would inspire this writing to take this form. Isn't this often the experience of the believer's life? We make petitions before the Lord knowing that in His grace He hears us. Nonetheless, we go for long seasons thereafter with nothing resolved. Still suffering the same danger, the same loneliness, the same heartache, with only the comfort that as one in covenant with God, He has not and will not abandon you. And really the larger truth being driven home here is that in some measure, this is the ongoing reality of the Christian life. That's why David ends in verse 22 by expanding his concern beyond his suffering while in covenant relationship with God to the life of the covenant community of God. He pleads, redeem Israel, O God, out of all His troubles. You see, we are a people who are in a constant state of hope. Waiting with confidence for that day when the Lord indeed will redeem us out of all our troubles. We look to the words of John in Revelation 21 to remind us of our true and certain hope when he says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the day we long for. This is the day we're continually hoping Let's pray. Lord God, thank You that Your Word speaks to us in every situation, in every season of life. Lord God, we are grateful that we can look to Your Scriptures and be encouraged, be given insight into how we can walk through this world. Father, I pray this morning for mercy. Lord God, I I ask that um, those here this morning walking through those hard times, God, that You would deliver them. But Lord, I pray that we all would continually fix our hope not on anything here, but that we would fix our hope on that day when You will wipe away every tear from our eyes and deliver us once and for all. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.